Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. Happy Father's Day, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good, good. Uh, I don't know whether to apologize or say you're welcome for what just happened. I do have to tell you, um, <clears throat> so we were talking about Chris doing that, and uh, Chris, Chris is the, um, he is just the captain of dad jokes, like, I have heard almost all of those over the course of the last two years of him being on staff. And I told him this week, I said, bud, here's the deal. You're batting about 10% on your dad jokes being funny, but 100% are always making me laugh because half the time he can't even get it out. I mean, really, this week, I I literally, (laughs) with his door closed and with worship music playing, I could hear him... Anyway, Chris, I love it, man. Thanks for bringing a little laughter. It's okay to laugh in church, right? If you do not agree with that, I'm sorry. You are going to be really disappointed. We like to laugh loud around here. It's one of our values. And so glad that you're here. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Listen, could you do me a favor? Could you put a round of applause for all the dads tuning in online? Thank you. Glad that you're tuning in with us. We are going to continue in our series by faith, but before we do, um, I'm going to bring a message today that it's going to connect and apply to everybody. But Dad, since it's it's Dad's Day, um, I want to I want to start with something to kind of help laser focus in on something for us. I want you to think about dads. I want you to think about a time where your kids made you proud. I want you to think about a time where your kids did something and just pleased you, something that caused you to just well up. Something that caused you to just be like, man, I love my kids so much. I am so proud of them. Maybe it was the first time that they smiled at you. Maybe it was that time that they served or helped somebody in need. Maybe it's because they did their chores without having to be asked. Maybe it's because they and their siblings actually were playing nice together. And you were on a road trip and you didn't have to say what every mom and dad has to say at some point in the road trip. I don't care who started it. I'll finish it. Maybe it's because your child went on to marry somebody awesome or make a great decision in their career or um, whatever it might be. I want you to think of a time where your child made you proud. Now, listen, I get it. I understand that we are always, as parents, we're always supposed to be thankful and proud of our kids. But we can be honest in church, can't we? There are some times where they test the limits. There are some grown children in the room here, and perhaps you are here with your mom or your dad, and they're looking at you going, oh yeah, there were many times I thought about taking you out. I love these moments as a dad when my kids rode their bike without training wheels for the first time. The first time they got a hit in T-ball. And the first time that my daughter successfully landed a back walkover. The first time my son brought me a comic book that he had written and drawn and, and told me the story. I mean, these are the moments as a dad where you're just welling up with pride. And it's in those moments, like, man, nothing else really matters. 
I, 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 it, it, the, the, the question of whether or not you love your kid was never in question, but it's those moments where something happens on the inside of you where you just well up and bubble over with, with, with pride and, and, and joy. And it's like, man, I am so, of all the kids in the world that could have been mine, I am so glad that God gave you to me. These are the moments that, that make it worth it to be a parent. It's the, it's the things that sometimes we've got to hold on to to help us get through some of those other moments. And I want to ask you a question today. Did you know that your heavenly father will at times in your life look down upon you and have the same feeling about you? And as we continue in our series called By Faith, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you learn how to approach and respond to the many different obstacles and opportunities in your life in a way that is pleasing to God and brings hope to you in the midst of hardship or difficulty. And we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11 and what we've been doing is we've been finding some of these heroes of the faith and we've been jumping back into the the earlier pages of the Bible to learn about these people. We're gonna do that. We're gonna continue that today as we study a man by the name of Enoch who we are gonna learn walked by faith. Now Hebrews 11 chapter five says this, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. You read that correctly. Very interesting. We're going to learn more about that. He was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Man, I have to tell you, of all the epitaphs that, that may someday be written about me when I die, I can think of nothing better than for people to say, man, he pleased God. And in order for us to understand exactly how Enoch pleased God, we, we've got to go back and we've got to learn about Enoch. And we find him in the book of Genesis chapter five. We're going to be in Genesis chapter five for a moment. And then we're going to go to probably the smallest book in the Bible called Jude, uh, right before Revelation. And we're going to connect some dots there. And this is what the Bible says. I mean, Enoch pleased God in such a profound way. The Bible says Enoch never died. Check this out, Genesis 5, verse 21, it says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah, means that he had a son named Methuselah, and he begot Methuselah. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. I mean, up to this point in the very short paragraph of the life of Enoch that we get in Genesis, um, it's pretty ho-hum. I mean, except for the fact that he lived several hundred years and, and that kind of thing. That's a little weird. But, but generally speaking, it's pretty ho-hum. He lived, he had kids, and then his life ended. But the way that his life ended is so interesting because it says this in verse 24, and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He didn't die. There was no funeral. There was no will or executor for his estate. He was here and then gone. Now listen, I don't know how this happened, but I like to imagine things a little bit when I read the Bible because it helps me make sense of it. And most of my influence of imagining how Enoch was here and then gone has been heavily influenced by Hollywood. It has. And the things that run through my mind, you don't know they didn't happen this way, and so you can't prove me wrong. Perhaps it was like Marty McFly jumping through time in the DeLorean and Doc is standing there on the road with burning rubber tires. Like, you don't know that's not how it happened. 
Or maybe it was like Star Trek. Any Trekkies? And Captain Kirk just says, beam me up, Scotty. Maybe he did that. Maybe he was like, God, beam me up, God. Again, you don't know how it happened. You don't know it didn't happen that way. But my mind sometimes kind of runs wild with it. But what we do know is that Enoch was here, gone. That's weird. As a dad, there have been times where you've wondered if that's happened to your children. You're at a store, you're at a ballpark, you're at a swim meet like I was yesterday, and it's like you were here, and now you're not. Where are you? If you've ever lost a child, you know the feeling of panic. Anybody ever lost a child? Anybody willing to admit that? Okay, we got some honest people. Wow. Wow, I need to take some notes. Parenting series coming up. So this is a little weird. Here's the crazy thing. This isn't the only time in the Bible that this happens. We actually learn this happens another time in 2 Kings chapter 2 when the prophet Elijah is caught up in a whirlwind. He doesn't die. God just calls him up in a whirlwind. Again, like I don't know if this was like Wizard of Oz, just caught up in the house just in a tornado and landed on the Wicked Witch of the East. I don't know. But Elijah gets caught up in a whirlwind and just, boom, taken up into heaven with God. So this is weird, but it's not unprecedented. This happens a couple of times. And what's interesting is, is that whatever it was about Enoch is that he pleased God in such a way that God said, you know what, man? Death is not worthy of you. I'm going to bring you on up to me. I'm going to bring you on up into heaven. I want to, want to connect a couple of dots here because I want to make sure that we're, we're on the same track. So God takes Enoch up. Why does it say that God took him? Hebrews 11.5 says that God took him because he pleased God. He made God proud. How, what did it look like for Enoch to please God? Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch walked with God. How did Enoch walk with God? Well, we don't, We don't have a lot of clarity on this. We really get this one paragraph in the Old Testament and we get a couple verses about about Enoch in the New Testament. And in order to try to make sense of what it might have looked like for Enoch to walk with God, in order for us to be able to draw some parallels to our lives today, we've got to go all the way to the New Testament to this really small book called Jude. Jude is a letter written to a group of churches and a group of Christians who have been infiltrated by these false teachers and by these these disciples of this this false religion. And what these false teachers were, were basically living like is they were living and taking the grace of God and they were, they were basically, um, prostituting it out. They, they were, they were devaluing it and they were essentially saying that if you have been saved by Jesus and you can live however you want. You can engage and enjoy any type of sensual activity. You can do what you want, how you want, when you want, with who you want. Hashtag do you boo. Hashtag treat yourself. It doesn't matter. You've been saved by Jesus. It's all good. And Jude writes to these churches and writes to these Christians, and he's trying to help them understand, listen, here's what you got to know. This is not the way of Jesus. You got to understand that, that there are false teachers that are proclaiming something that is not accurate and is not true and does not align with the word of God, the spirit of God, and the will of God for your life. 
And so what Jude does in his short little book, it doesn't even have a chapter. It's just Jude and then verses. And what he does is he, he goes back and forth between modern examples in their time, and then he jumps back into Old Testament times and talks about and gives examples of how these, this same mindset, this false teaching mindset that, that you don't have to align to God, you don't have to adhere to God, you don't have to follow God, you just, you just claim to believe God and you accept his love, and then you go on and do how you want to do it, when you want to do it, where you want to do it, with whoever it is that you might want to do it with. And what Jude says in Jude chapter 12, and what he's doing is he's trying to paint the idea that these, this mindset, this philosophy, these people have always existed. And Jude writes this in Jude 12. He says, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Now, when he says these, he's referring to the people the people of this false teaching, of this false religion, the, 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 the false teachers themselves and the following that they have grown. And what, what Jude is saying, there's so much going on in this one verse. He's saying, these people, these are spots in your love feast. What's a love feast? A love feast is like, like a, 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 a first century manifestation of a good old fashioned church potluck. We're going to do one of those next Sunday. All right. And what would happen in these love feasts is these would be the, the early followers of Jesus. They would gather together and they would, they would worship and they would hear teaching from, from, from the law and the teachings of Jesus. And then um, these love feasts were, were marked as slightly different because these love feasts were feasts where they would come and they would uh, partake and participate in communion or the Lord's Supper. And then after this was over, they would basically have, um, you know, like I said, a potluck. Now, listen, if you grew up in church, particularly if you grew up in the Baptist church, man, y'all are having some memories flooding your mind right now of a, of a church potluck in the fellowship hall. In the fellowship hall. In my church growing up, it was a, it was a basketball gym. And uh, there was two famous women in my church. And as I've come to learn, it seems like there's two famous women in every church. There's, there's, there's the lady who brings the side dish that people are almost literally spoon fighting in the dish for. And then there's the lady who brings the dish and nobody knows why she keeps bringing it. Because ain't nobody fighting over that dish. Maybe the reason why she does it now, you know, actually, I'm just having a revelation right now in this very moment because I'm realizing like, and I don't do a lot of the cooking, but I can see it from my wife's perspective. Like if there's something that our family likes, but nobody else likes, she's probably thinking, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and make this now because ain't nobody going to eat it when I get there and I'm going to have to cook tomorrow. Man, that's a Proverbs 31 woman right there. So what does Jude do? And Jude is criticizing these churches. Notice what he says. He says, they've come into your love feast and they feast with you without fear. He said, listen, you have allowed these people to come in and to continue to advance and to continue to live and to continue to proclaim this false idea of relating to God and relating to Jesus. And what you, you, you they're, they're just allowed to be welcomed in the fellowship. And, and, and they don't have any fear of being told, hey, you can't, you can't teach that here. That's not the way of Jesus. And he describes these false teachers in the next couple of verses. And he describes their disciples with some pretty descriptive words. He says things like they're empty, like clouds without water. 
these false teachers and the people who follow them, they, they're, they're empty like, like a fruit tree at harvest time that had been previously taken up by the roots. All the other trees have fruit on them, but these trees do not because they have been dug up. He goes on to say that they are useless as raging waves and wandering stars. And they, they put on, basically what he's saying is, is they put on a good show, but there's absolutely no substance to their life. And these are the people who want all of the tangible benefits of being a part of the Jesus movement and being a part of the community of the church, but have no interest in subscribing to or aligning to the way of Jesus. They want to be able to participate and enjoy all of the things that, the, that Jesus's church should offer of, of friendliness and fellowship and companionship and support and encouragement and prayer and, 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 and help in times of need. They want to be able to participate in all of that stuff, but they're not interested in aligning their lives to the message of Jesus. What they're interested in is they're interested in basically just being able to get as much as they need to be able to have a belief that maybe they cannot go to hell and go to heaven but continue to live and do all the things that they want to do. We would refer to them in, in church circles. We would refer to them probably as a casual Christian, which I think is a really interesting phrase. I, I shared a message, uh, um, a, a link this week, uh, a clip this week on my social media of uh, a pastor down in Texas named Matt Chandler who, who was delivering this whole message and he was talking about how there is no category in the Bible for casual Christians. And it made me think, I think he's exactly right. And it, and it kind of made me think like, where, where did that come from? Because you don't see in the Bible, you don't see the disciples as casual Christians. It made me think how, how there are things that we do as a society, we do kind of casually, right? Like, like the first thing that came into my mind was, was people who are casual drinkers, right? Like you're not, you don't need to drink. You don't, you don't have to drink. You're not addicted to it. It's, it's not something that you really need. But if you're in the right setting of the right group of people, then you just kind of casually do it. it, it it's, it's not something that is a, 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 a huge part of your identity. But in the right setting, sure, okay, you know, I'll have a beer, I'll have this or whatever, right? And so you engage in, in casual drinking. And this isn't a message to try to condemn this and go into all the theology of what does the Bible say about drinking and all that good stuff. That'd be another message for another day. But here's the deal. It made me think about how so many times, and if we're not careful, that there are people who, who commit their lives. They, they make regular church attendance a part of what they do, or, or they, they, maybe they don't make church attendance a part of what they do, but they have a consideration that, yeah, I'm a Christian, but in our mind and in our approach and the way that we live, it would be classified as nothing more than a casual Christian. If you're in the right situation with the right people, yeah, sure, I go to church. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, uh-huh. I even raise my, well, two hands a little much. Sometimes I'll do one. Sometimes I'll do the field goal. Sometimes I'll carry the baby. Sometimes I'll give the air hug, right? Like in worship. Right? And, and, and maybe sometimes I might even pray with or pray for somebody. But we certainly don't allow Jesus to have the authority in our lives about how we live our life when we're not at church. We've not given Jesus the, the authority to sit on the throne of our life and allow him to be the one that makes the decisions about how we spend our money. 
We've not given Jesus the authority to make the decisions about how I'm going to um, act or react or interact with my spouse or my children or my parents. We've not given Jesus the authority to make the decision about where I go with my career. We've not given Jesus the authority to make the decision about, um, about what I'm gonna do in different situations. And instead, what happens is, is when we kind of adopt this casual Christianity mindset is, is when we're in the right setting with the right people, then sure, I'll act like a Christian and I'll act like a Jesus person, but the rest of my life, it's just casual, you know? It's just kind of a thing. I only do it in certain situations, but, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those like Bible thumpers. You know what I'm saying? I'm not one of those holy rollers. I'm not one of those Jesus freaks. And can I just tell you today, like the message of the Bible provides absolutely no category for those types of people. Now listen, I realize that what I'm saying might, might be cutting a little deep today. And I want you to know, I love you. And it's the reason why I'm telling you this. I believe that you are either a follower of Jesus and you have been saved from your sin and are being sanctified, which is a fancy word of allowing Jesus to have the authority and the control in your life so that he can mold and shape and shift you to become more like him. You are either a follower of Jesus and you have been saved and you are being continually sanctified by him or you are a denier of Christ. Whoa, preacher man, that's a little stiff. Did he just say what I think he just said? Is he, preacher, are you saying that if I'm not allowing Jesus to change my life outside of Sundays, that it's possible that I'm not really a Christian? I want to say this as delicately as possible. But that's exactly what I'm saying. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me put it to you this way. If you can deny the power of Christ to continually change your life, then you have probably never received the power of Christ to save your life. Listen, here's what I'm trying to get across. The work of the gospel of Jesus, the good news that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a death on the cross that every single person on the planet deserved. And in so doing, took all of the wrath of God for all of the sin that you committed and I committed and went to the grave. And on the third day came back from the grave. Like the power of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did, that by placing our faith in his death on the cross and his resurrection, that our sins can be forgiven and we can be set free and we can go into and walk into a growing relationship with God. The power of the gospel of Jesus Jesus does not end at the moment that you got saved. The power of the gospel of Christ only begins at the moment that you got saved. Listen, the point of the gospel is not so that you can just just bypass hell and skip over the flames and goes, "Woo, I made it. I'm not going to hell. Listen, no, the power of the gospel begins there, but it continues to work in us, to shape us and mold us and to chisel away anything of our flesh, anything of our sinful nature, so that all that can be seen and all that is left is Christ in us which is the hope of glory this is the power of the work of Jesus in our life and it, it ends it never I'm sorry it never ends 
We refer to this process as sanctification. And can I just tell you something, church? Sanctification is mostly not fun. Sanctification mostly hurts. Sanctification will sometimes have you feeling like God is beating up on you. Sanctification never ends. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus to mold and shape and conform us so that we become less like us and more like him. The kind of faith that receives salvation but denies sanctification is an empty faith. Kind of like clouds with no water and fruit trees that have no fruit on them at the time of the harvest. It's empty. And we can show up to church and we can put on a good show and we can throw a Jesus bumper sticker on and we can listen to Caleb and we can give to every pledge-a-thon that happens all the time on the radio. If you don't listen to Christian music, God bless you. It's commercial-free except for the two six-month pledge-a-thons that they do. Some of you are like, Christian music? Ew. It's gotten better, I promise. (laughs) Can I just tell you something that we, we can... It'd be really easy to do all the Jesus-y things and churchy things and speak Christianese and show up to church. The point of being a Christian is not about being able to gather in a room together to show everyone else how holy and spiritual you are. Put it to another way. The point of Christianity is not to show up to church on Sunday morning so God can be proud of you for how good you look and how high your hands were raised during worship. The point of Christianity is allowing God to continually fix your jacked up life. I thank God for that. May we never be a church and may we never be a people that are only interested in just putting on the show and putting on the church face mask Instead, may we always be the kind of people that are saying, Lord, you know just how jacked up and messed up I am. I need your help. It's Tuesday and I'm going into a meeting and dear Lord, help me. I want to throat punch somebody. Sanctification is when God takes that hand and puts it back down into your pocket. Sanctification is when you're with your kids and you lose your cool and God goes, zippy. Sanctification is when You're in your room and you're going, I ain't doing it. I ain't apologizing to her first. I ain't going to do it. Mm -mm. No. Sanctification is God going, let me know how that works for you. Now, Enoch was the seventh from Adam and he prophesied about these men also saying, and here's what happens here. 
Jude quotes from uh, a, a, a group of texts that are referred to in theological circles as the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a collection of Jewish, ancient Jewish history books. They're not the Bible, but they are things that report oftentimes of, of things that happened in Bible times. And sometimes it includes um, some of the life and the actions of people that the Bible tells us about. And that's the case. The Apocrypha, one of the books of the Apocrypha tells us about one of the things that, that Jude was famous for saying. And he says this, he says, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. You see, Enoch comes and he stands in opposition to these people that, that he's trying to, in, in Jude, he's trying to say, listen, this idea of these people who, who follow this type of religion that says, I'll take Jesus and then leave the rest so I can live how I want to, like, this is not a new idea. This has been going on a long time. Let me take you all the way back to Enoch and as we, and let me tell you about the things that he was saying about the people who are supposed to be of God. I mean, this is seven generations from Adam. So, I mean, you know, you talk about a family tree falling off track really fast. And, and Enoch is reported of prophesying about all these ungodly things that people are doing. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, this is not the way of God. This is not how we're supposed to do things. And you need to know that God is not going to put up with this forever. God, at some point, God's going to say, listen, I'm not going to allow you to continue to defame me and defile me until I finally go in action against you. And what Jude does is he elevates Enoch and he gives us a glimpse into the life of Enoch. He gives us a glimpse into the times of Enoch and the way that Enoch did. And as he does, we learn that Enoch was different from the rest of the world. That Enoch, we know he walked by faith, according to Hebrews 11. And what that means is, according to Genesis chapter 5, is that he walked with God. And that stands in sharp contrast to what the world does because what the world does, the world doesn't walk by faith. The world isn't interested in faith. The world is only interested in the things it can see, it can know, it can tangibly experience. The world is interested in walking by sight and the world is interested only in walking with others and going with the crowd. And I just have to tell you today, not only... Was this idea not new when Jude penned this in the first century? It is not new for us who are living in the 21st century. The world still lives by sight and not by faith. The world still wants to go with the crowd and go with what's popular and go with what's trending instead of going with God. Jesus talked about the incredible danger of going with the flow and going with the crowd. In Matthew chapter seven, he said, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who get in by it. He said, listen, you wanna go with the world? You wanna go with the flow? Listen, here's the promise I'm gonna make you about going with the flow and going with the world. It's gonna be easy and you're gonna find a lot of people there and it's gonna feel like the popular thing to do. You're never gonna have to search for affirmation or encouragement doing way, things the way that the world does them because there will always be people there. There will always be people who are gonna tell you, you are absolutely doing the right thing. Absolutely, do it this way. He said, what to you? Oh girl, drop him like a bad habit. Jesus goes on to say this in verse 14. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. 
and there are a few who find it. Jesus is making a promise. If you want to get to the place where life is truly abundant, it's going to be hard for you to find it. And it's going to be difficult to get there. But if you will commit yourself to doing things by faith and not by sight, if you will commit yourself by walking with God instead of walking with others, I promise you it'll be worth it. What does this look like? What does it look like in our time for us to walk with God? Well, uh, what did it look like for Enoch? Verse six, Hebrews eleven six. but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those things who diligently seek them. How do we become like Enoch? We have to be willing to do what Enoch did. We have to be willing to walk by faith and not by sight. What does that mean? Well, remember what faith is. Faith is believing something is so when it isn't so because God said it so. What God is saying is, is listen, you got to understand this. Anything that you do in your life that doesn't require faith, God might say, nice job. But it doesn't please him. He's not mad at you necessarily. But it doesn't please him. It's not a moment that's going to make him proud. You want to know how to please God? You want to know how to make God proud? God tells us right here. You want to please me? You want to make me proud? Do the things that require faith to get them done. Make the decision to walk by faith and not by sight, to walk with me and to not walk with the world. Well, how do we do this? Well, the Bible gives us two images. The first image is this one. It's Adam and Eve. And what we see in the earliest accounts of the Bible in Genesis is that God creates Adam and then God creates Eve and he puts them in this perfect place where they're to have dominion and authority over everything that's in the garden. They're supposed to have kids and to multiply and to fill it up and to, and to be God's emissary, to be God's ambassador to this place, to be the king over this place as God is the king over all of creation. And we learn in the account that Adam and Eve would walk with God and talk with God in the cool of the day. Can you imagine that? Imagine walking with God side by side. What would you ask him? God, why did you make mosquitoes? And you ain't giving us clothes yet, so it don't make no sense. Adam and Eve walked with God and they talked with God. This is the image, this is the picture that God always had in mind with you. To be able to walk in fellowship and closeness and intimacy, to be able to give you a, a freedom and a space to be able to ask your questions, to bring your curiosities and God would be there to answer those questions and answer every curiosity that you have. This is the image that God has been fighting for, by the way, since sin entered this human story and the human existence. It's the thing that God has been pushing for and fighting for to be able to get back to a place where he can walk in intimate fellowship side by side, stride for stride with the pinnacle of his creation, which is humanity. And from the moment that God 
thought of you, from the moment that God ideated you, from the moment that God imagined you, and then he wired you, and he knit you together, and he connected all the dots, and then he put you in your mother's womb, and you were grown and born, and then you, you, you begin to walk and crawl and walk and live and learn and experience what this life is, and from the, the first time that you experienced joy, to the first time that you smiled, to the first time that you had ice cream, to the first time that you skinned your knee on your bike, to the first time that somebody hurt you, God has been fighting to get back to this image of walking with you in closeness and intimacy and fellowship with you. And for somebody here today, this is a very different image than what you have been led to believe. Because somewhere along the line, somebody who proclaimed to represent God told you that you don't matter to God. Somebody with their actions, with their words, with the way that they lived, the way they treated you, told you that you don't matter. Somebody told you that God hates you, that God's mad at you, that God can't stand you, that God is, that God is angry with you. And I just have news for you to tell you today that the event that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came onto this planet and he was lifted up and died on a cross is a graphic and a great portrayal of the opposite of that, that it's not that God is mad at you, that God hates you, that he's angry with you. He is absolutely mad about you. He loves you. He sees you. He knows every heartache, every hurt, every pain, every joy, and he wants to be a part of that. And not only be a part of that, he wants to lead you to a place where all of the, the goodness and the joy and the peace of this life that you've ever experienced could be greatly uh, uh, um, exponentially made better in his presence in a relationship with him. That is what God thinks of you. But because of sin, it can't look like this anymore. And so Jesus gives us a, sec a second image. And I'm not going to put these verses on the screen for you because my hope is, is that especially if you've been here and you, you, you've heard this passage of scripture before, I hope that you would see it in a new light. Because Jesus gives us the image that is a little weird for us unless you live on a vineyard. But Jesus gives us a new image of walking with God, of walking by faith. And it's the image of, of a vineyard. It's the image of a vine. It's the image of a root. It's an image of, of, of trellises. It's an image of, of grapes. Jesus paints for us this image in John chapter 15. When he says this, he says, I am the true vine. You see this image where you see the the middle vine coming down and it goes up and then it spreads out. This is the true vine. This is the source. This is the anchor. This is, this is the thing that all of the fruit and the grapes comes from. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He's saying, I am the one who, who is the source of all good things for you. And my father is the vine dresser and he's, he's constantly aware of what's going on in your life. And there's going to be times where he's going to 
He's going to prune things. There's going to be times he's going to take some things away. There's going to be some times where in the moment, in the short run, in the short season, in the short view, there's going to be things that he's going to do and it's going to sting. It's going to cut. It's going to hurt. But he does it so that you can be more healthy. He does it so that you can bear more fruit. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've trusted in him for salvation. You are already clean because of his life and the things that his life has spoken to you. And then he says a word, and this word gets repeated. He says, abide in me. This word abide means that you would continually dwell with in the same way that a vine naturally connects The branches naturally connect to the vine. Jesus is saying, I want you to abide in me in that way. I want you to be connected to me. I want you to be be, be rooted to me and be anchored to me in such a way that to be apart from me would feel weird. It would feel awkward. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Can I just speak to somebody today that somebody today is feeling frustrated that the effort of your work and the the fruit of your life, it it, it just doesn't seem to be producing. You don't don't feel like the fruit is there and and maybe there is some fruit, but the fruit is bitter and it it, it just doesn't seem right and, and life just seems like it's just not what it's supposed to be. Could I ask the question, how are you doing when it comes to abiding in Christ the way that the, the branch abides in the vine? Because apart from him, you can do no thing. The image changes now and we see clusters of grapes. This is the fruit of the vine in abundance. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. You know what he's talking about here? That, that he, he, he's talking about that, that when, you, when you don't abide in me, he's not saying that if you choose to stop following me, then you're done, you're out, I'm done with you. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that, that when you don't abide in me, that there are gonna be times where something's gonna happen and you are gonna feel like you are being burned up. But the promise of God is that if you will abide in him, if you will stay with him, if you will dwell with him, then scripture says that when, not if, you walk through the fires of life, you will not be burned. And if you abide in my words and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You know the reason why Jesus is making a blank check promise here? It's not for the reason that you're thinking. Jesus is making a blank check promise here because here's what Jesus knows. When you abide in him, your desires your interests, your wants, and your requests begin to change. That's part of the byproduct of sanctification, by the way. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am so confident that your life will be so changed in great ways that when you abide in me, you can ask for whatever you want 
because your requests and your interests and your desires will be perfectly aligned with my interests and my desires for your life. Then he says, by this, my father is glorified that you would bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. What is the image here? It's not just a vine. It's not just a cluster of grapes. The image that Jesus wants us to see, the image that his disciples would have immediately understood. We're not just talking about a vine and a cluster of grapes. We're talking about an entire vineyard. As the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus in this place today, how do you please the Father? How do you make God proud of you? You do that by walking by faith, by abiding in Jesus. Dads, let me talk to you for a second. How do you as a dad make your spiritual father, your heavenly father, proud of you? When you choose to walk by faith, by abiding in Jesus. Dads, can I just tell you something today? The best thing, the best gift that you will ever give your children, they will, those gifts, those things, the best things will never, ever be associated with the stuff you buy, with the money you made from the work you did. The best gifts, the best things that you can give your son or your daughter And can I just tell you this? If you are a grown, if you are a parent of grown children, this still applies. The best things that you will give your children will be the fruit that comes out of the byproduct of sanctification, of abiding in Jesus. What is that fruit? Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the spirit is love. The kind of love that isn't based on performance or action. It's, it, it's, the, it's the love that comes from God that you give to your children. The fruit of the spirit is love. It's joy. It doesn't mean there's not gonna be hardship or there's not gonna be stuff that's gonna, gonna cause the family to freak out, but there is a joy that you possess. And when they're in your presence, they are, they are basking in the joy of their father. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Can I tell you one of the best presents you can give to your children is that you would bring a peaceful aura with you, that every time they come into your presence, they sense the peace of God that surpasses all understanding because you are living in the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's long suffering. Can I tell you, listen, our kids, scripture says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Your child is a fool. 
Some grown parents in the place today with the parents of grown kids are going, amen. One of the greatest gifts that you can give your child is to be willing and to be able to suffer long with them in their process of becoming who God wants them to be. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Can I tell you how this is most often demonstrated from a father? It's not necessarily with with physical affection. It's kindness that comes from your mouth. The things that you say about their mother, the things that you say about their grandparents, the things that you say about their other siblings, the things that you say about people who were in positions of authority in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The best things. Dad, the best things that you will ever give your kids will be the byproduct of these Nine fruits of the Spirit. So that when they are in your presence, they experience the tangible love of a heavenly Father who gave His only Son so that he might be able to walk in relationship with them. So here's my question for you. How can you abide in Jesus this week? I can't answer it for you. But I pray you will leave this place asking this question. How can I abide in Jesus this week? And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, can I just tell you that God loves you so much? On this day where we celebrate dads, there has never been a father like our heavenly father who created us and made us and wired us in his image and loves us and pursues us and constantly wants us to know that we are loved by him. And I want you to know today that if you have never experienced this kind of love from God, that maybe today would be the day where you take your step of faith and your journey of walking by faith starts today with the first step of faith by saying, God, I will receive your love by faith in Jesus. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.